Amen. Amen. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 21 is where we continue onward in this section as God has been giving to the children of Israel now really some instruction, reminders, of course, for this next generation. And in this particular section, dealing with some civil and social affairs as to how they were to conduct themselves as a society when they got into the land. He's talked about judges and a way to handle judicial matters and kings and prophets and false prophets and even described a little bit of information about warfare and how they were to use different approaches and protocol depending upon the type of enemy and battles that they were fighting and now we continue with that same sort of vein of thought as God goes on beginning in chapter 21 now and I'm going to read uh, this section verse 1 through 9 it's a little bit lengthy but encompasses the whole uh, really principle that's being described here as God gives instruction about finding a dead body out in the fields and sort of a a murder mystery if you would this would be a, a murder mystery type thing they don't know what happened but yet a murder's transpired it says if anyone is found slain lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess and it is not known who killed him so the, the the picture here in your mind again typically in that day many of the cities would end up being walled or clearly marked boundaries and then a lot of times outside of the walled areas of the cities there would then be the fields where they would you know plant their crops and and vineyards and so forth so uh, again it would be a little more difficult if outside of the city where everybody was around maybe in an area that was more rural you're out there you go out to work your field and then lo and behold as you're working the field you come upon this very unpleasant discovery you realize there's a dead body there's a corpse there Uh, there's no indication of how this person died who killed them when they died uh, but you discover that obviously there's been a clear murder that's taken place that someone has killed an individual but no one knows who's killed them then verse 2 the elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding city. So they were to check the idea here is which city would be closest by measuring off the territories from where the body was found. And it shall be that the elders of the city, notice, nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not worked and which has not pulled with the yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. So uh, the city closest to where the dead body is was to take responsibility for the murder. Now, does not mean that it was one of their residents that committed the crime necessarily, uh, but the city that was closest in proximity was to take responsibility for handling the affair. What it's describing they were to do here, this was a practice and a protocol that God described, was that they were to take this uh, heifer. Again, the idea is is an animal. It says there, notice verse 3, it's never worked, it's never pulled a yoke. The idea is it's never really had an opportunity to expend its full potential. Uh, It has never yet really fulfilled the purposes for which it was designed and created for, which would be to do those things, to work in the fields, to pull a yoke. Its potential, in a sense, has never been used. They were to take that animal out into a valley where there was flowing water in, notice, a field or an area where it had not yet been plowed or sown. So again, the idea is this field, which could be plowed or sown, the potential of that field was never tapped into yet. It was never used. 
And there they were to take that heifer and they were to basically put it to death. In a sense, they were to murder that heifer. They were to break its neck. In a sense, uh, again, in this, uh, again, dispute is back and forth here, commentators. Some want to say that this is a sacrifice to make atonement. Others say it's not necessarily a sacrifice, but a substitutionary act as a picture uh, to represent. And I think this is a fair uh, thing because if you think about what's going on here, as I said, here's an animal. Its potential has not been used. Here's a field. Its potential has not been used. And a person who has been killed and their life has been taken from them, in a sense, they've been robbed of the full potential of everything they were designed for. Their life was taken short. So whether it's a 21-year-old found murdered or a 40-year-old found murdered or a 60-year-old found murdered, the point is, is God creates a life. He writes all the days in his book before one comes to be, and he has plans and potential of how he wants to use a person's life. And when somebody is murdered or killed, that potential is robbed from them. It's taken away the full potential of what they could have done or the work they could have accomplished or maybe some things that would have happened through their life has been snuffed out and taken away. So in a sense, this animal is a picture. It was a symbolic reminder to the people of exactly what had happened, that potential had been robbed and stolen. And this was not something that was to be looked upon lightly. So this animal was severely put to death. It was, in a sense, a, a substitutionary or something, a sacrificial type act. And the priests and the sons of Levi shall come near for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord by their word. Notice again, not just the civil leaders, but the spiritual leaders by their word, every controversy and every assault. So take notice of that. God took notice of physical assault uh, in society shall be settled, shall be dealt with physical assaults and controversies. And all the elders of that city nearest the slain man then shall wash their hands over that heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. The idea is that they're in a sense washing their hands saying, look, we're not guilty of this. We're not responsible. Look at verse seven. They shall answer and say, our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. And then they were to pray, provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. Do not lay the innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel, and atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So there was this practice that God instituted. Obviously, this would take place. Uh, there would be occasions where people would be found killed or murdered and no one would know the details of who did it or how it happened. But I want you to notice the entire community took some level of responsibility for the crime. Though no one knew what happened, the entire community where it did happen, in a sense, was to take some measure of guilt upon themselves as a people, as a society, that in a sense, they allowed this to happen under their watch or among the citizens of people and who they were and their children that they raised and the families that they were and the society and the community. In a sense, they all took a sense of responsibility that we in some way are guilty of this. Forgive us, O Lord. 
We admit we don't have any idea. Notice uh, the idea is the elders would wash their hands as symbolic representatives of the leaders of that community. And they would say in verse 7, our hands did not shed this blood and our eyes have not seen it. In other words, we're saying, they're saying, Lord, we honestly don't know who did this because if we did, we would execute proper judgment against them. We would not tolerate this. We would exercise punishment in a due manner, but we don't know who did this. So please provide atonement, forgive us, take away this, in, this innocent life that has been killed, the guilt of it away from us. And the point here is that innocent life was taken, a person's potential in their life was robbed. And God did not want the people to ever become comfortable with that. He did not want the people ever in any way to dismiss life as being taken from someone as really not that big of a deal. An innocent life being robbed was something that God never wanted his people to be comfortable with. He never wanted to say, oh, well, you know, I guess that's just, this just happens. It just happens. And, and honestly, that, that can really begin to happen uh, in any culture, in any community. You know, I mean, you think of some communities, I mean, we're somewhat blessed where we live, but certainly some communities, some cities, even in our own country where, I mean, the numbers are staggering how many people are killed and put to death on a regular basis through murder and crime and so forth, and how you can almost begin to, you know, somewhat become just jaded. It just becomes commonplace. Well, just is anything else new? I mean, three more people murdered today. And, and God never wanted his people to begin to be comfortable with that. He wanted them to realize the value of life and especially innocent life. Uh, and, and God never takes it lightly. And, and I, I don't think we ever should either when someone innocent is violated. Uh, and when someone is, in a sense, assaulted in that manner, he wants us to be, in a sense, shocked by that, to be troubled by that. And so here, just a very interesting thing, how they all, in a sense, took some level of responsibility, sought God's forgiveness, asked for God's mercy and atonement for the guilt by doing what was right to put away that guilt that was among them. Verse 10 then says, and when you go out to war, so we reflect back now on uh, warfare practices, we back in chapter 12. 20, when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand and you take them captive. Now, let me set the context here. This is not describing warfare within the land of Canaan. Uh, God gave clear description of that in other places of how because of the conditions of the Canaanite people and how debased and immoral they had become and God was using Israel as a form of judgment upon those people in the land, uh, God was very clear that they were to completely do away with the people in that land because it was an act of the judgment of God, not just giving them their land by getting rid of them. What God's describing here, as we saw as well in chapter 20, that there would be times when Israel would be engaged in wars, battles and conflicts outside of the land with surrounding territories for different reasons. And God's here giving warfare uh, protocol, if you would, when they go out to war against enemies in surrounding regions and territories, other areas outside the land of Canaan. And he said, when you receive victory and the Lord delivers your enemy into your hand and you take people captive, which was a typical part of warfare in that day, and you see among, verse 11, the captives, a beautiful woman. So a prisoner of war, a, a, a woman who you recognize and you, you take her as a very beautiful woman, but she's a prisoner of war. And then you, verse 11, desire her and would take her for your wife, verse 12. Then you shall bring her home to your house and shall shave her head and trim her nails 
and shall put off, she shall put off the clothes of her captivity, that is the clothes of her land, and, and put on clothes of, of the people of Israel. Remain in your house and mourn for her father and mother a full month. That was the typical time of mourning in that day, a month. Again, whether she's mourning because her parents died in the battle or warfare, or whether she's mourning because she's been taken away from her parents and now is a captive in the land of Israel as a prisoner of war, she's to be given that month to mourn. And after that, God says, after that month, you may then go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. Now, the reason this is being given here, verses 10 through 13, is keep in mind, and if you know a little bit of history, you study ancient practices, you know that it was common practice in ancient warfare that when a land was conquered or a people were, were you know, taken over, uh, typically the mindset of those who conquered a land or a territory was that they owned everything and as a result of that there was a lot of brutal treatment and many a times women were at the brunt of that. Women were abused, women were raped and, and just used in a very cruel and a harsh way. And I hate to say it, but in the same way that in a lot of cultures today still in different places outside the United States, this same kind of thing happens. Where a people group or a territory will be conquered and the women become the subject of being abused and raped and just used in a sick way and treated with absolutely no dignity or respect. And so God understanding that this was common practice, he shows the nation of Israel as his people, I don't want you to behave the way the world does. I don't want you to behave in every area of life, even in warfare. When you conquer a people and you take them captive and you have prisoners of war legitimately, God says, I don't want you to treat the women the way that other people in the world treat women with no dignity and no respect this was instituted basically these rules here verse 7 through 13 basically instituted to protect the dignity of women in the culture to safeguard them to make sure that they were not abused or unfairly treated to ensure they were not just used for personal pleasure raped or whatever and then just discarded so god institutes this that if a man he says has an attraction towards one of the women who's a prisoner of war so you conquer a foreign territory, you take prisoners of war, you see one of these foreign women. And again, remember, this couldn't be a Canaanite woman because they weren't allowed to intermarry with the Canaanite people. So this is a foreign woman from another area. You're attracted to her. You think that she's beautiful and you want to marry this woman, take her home as your wife. Uh, you couldn't just do that instantaneously. God instituted a practice here where what it says to us, verse 12 and 13, is that if you desired to take her as a wife, you were to bring her home to your house. You weren't allowed to touch her or have sexual activity with her. You were to bring her home, it says. First thing you were to do was to shave her head and cut her nails. Now, I'll tell you something right away. All of a sudden, she looks completely different than that hot-to-trot mama you saw coming back from the battlefield. Because now she's a cue ball, okay? You were to shave her head. You were to trim her nails so she doesn't got no pinkies salon manicure going on, you know. And in a sense, there's, there's a humbling of this where you get the bare bones reality of this is what she really looks like. You kind of idea here. And then there was a month time span why she rightly, compassionately mourned the loss of her parents and being separated 
And this month process where they would have to wait, you could not marry her, you could not be sexual or physical with her, you had to allow her that month. And again, what was this? God was wisely not only just protecting the dignity of the woman from being treated in an unhealthy or inappropriate way, but he also was wisely allowing there to be a time period to decide, do you really want to enter into this commitment? Because now you have the next month to stare at this bald woman (laughs) and to spend time with her and to get to know her a little more than just the impulse of being on the battlefield, being lonely, having desires for physical intimacy and seeing this very attractive woman and saying, I want her and I want her now. And now you have a month where you have to use self-control and refrain. You have to get to know her in a different way on a deeper level and to slow down, to take a closer look. And in a sense, it was an opportunity for the man to consider, do I really want to enter into this relationship? Is this really something I want to do? Do I really want to make this commitment with this woman? And was there anything that he observed after waiting a bit that gave him some revelation of other things about her that might give him pause and cause him to reconsider and say, you know what? Before I enter into that kind of a commitment and marry her, I think I see some things that would cause me to have a little bit of a change of heart. So before I enter into that commitment, I'm going to refrain. And again, you you had to be willing, notice, to commit. You couldn't just use a woman for personal pleasure. God wanted there to be commitment. You had to be willing to marry her and then you could take her for you as your wife in a sense and have a normal marital relationship. And I think there are two things that become evident looking at this by way of application. First of all, that marriage is a serious thing and God takes it very seriously. I think this very simple little practical uh, you know, instruction that God gave regarding how they were to handle warfare and captives of war and seeing an attractive foreign woman. Notice that whole process of shaving the head, as I said, and, and taking a month God's saying, look, marriage is a serious thing. It's important to slow down and to take time and to make sure you really know who somebody is before you step into that serious of a commitment. Again, not to be hasty, not to be impulsive, not to go off of just strong desires alone and physical attraction alone because God says that's not going to be enough to last the duration of a marriage commitment. If you're just going off of physical beauty alone, God says that's not reality. So God says, shave her head, look a little deeper. See something more there. Find other reasons. And God says, take a month and spend some time with her on a regular basis because you may then discover some things that make you reconsider before you step into the relationship and then end up realizing it's not a healthy thing and you should have never married that person. Again, I think this is just really, really good wisdom. You know, the people would realize the seriousness of a marriage commitment and not just be driven by impulse or desire too quickly to enter into marriage with someone before they know they actually should. Because sometimes it's that time that reveals things. It's that time that gives further indication of whether or not, yes, this is something I want to do and this is the right person, or do I need to reconsider before I've gone too far in regards to that. I think there's just great, great wisdom there. If you're single, to take note of that. If you know someone you know, who's not married yet, to, to, to encourage them to, to be patient. That it's a good thing to do that. There's a balance in regards to, to that kind of a thing. And the reason why is because a lot of times, listen, sometimes people are just so driven by their desires 
And I found sometimes people are just so in love with the idea of being married, they'll marry almost anybody. Listen, you need to be in love with the right person and then choose to commit to marriage. And this is the other thing I think this reveals to us about God's heart and God's nature is God wants there to be commitment in romantic relationships. This was a prohibition from allowing men to just use women for physical pleasure and then just discard them to rape them, to use them for sexual pleasure and to say, okay, I'm done with you. You're just a prisoner of war anyway. And God said, no, in romantic, there needs to be commitment. You need to be willing to marry this gal. You need to be willing to enter into a commitment with her and to enter into the full responsibility of that. And God wants there to be that commitment in romantic relationships, not people just living together, not people just using each other for physical satisfaction, but the commitment and then out of the commitment then comes the other perks and blessings that God's created in a romantic relationship once the marriage has taken place. So verse 15, excuse me, verse 14, let's go on here. It says, and it shall be, and this is again the idea at the end of the 30 days, same, same thing we're talking about. It shall be if you have no delight in her. And I think the idea here is if after 30 days you do discover, mm, boy, I didn't know she had that scar on her head, you know, or <laughs> I, I, I didn't, know she, didn't know she behaved like that or that she, you know, burnt the food as often as she did. But after 30 days, you, you, you find, I don't know if this really is, is what I want or who I want. You, you find something that displeases you. You don't want to go through with the marriage, though you initially thought you did. It shall be, if you have no delight in her at the end of the time period, then you shall set her free. You shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. You've shaved her head. You've taken her in and, you know, evaluated for 30 days if you wanted to marry her. Again, this was how they were to handle things. If after the month they had a change of heart, if they didn't have the same interests, if they saw some qualities that displeased them, that they did not want to then marry that girl, notice God said that they were to treat her very respectfully. They weren't to abuse her. They weren't to treat her brutally. God says, you know, don't you dare think about trying to, you know, uh, you know, sell her for some profit. Hey, I, I got a gal. I, you know, I took her in. Let me God says, no, that's absolutely inappropriate. You've already humbled her enough by shaving her head and spending the month with her, getting to know her. So God says, treat her respectfully with dignity and let her go free. And move on with her life. Verse 15, if a man has two wives, so this gets more and more interesting, doesn't it? One loved, wait till you see where we're going uh, probably next week. You might want to call in sick. <laughs> I might. <laughs> if, a man, if a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have be borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, the unloved wife, then it shall be on the day when he bequests or bequeaths, excuse me, his possessions to his sons, he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved wife, the true firstborn. So he wasn't to do a switcheroo and, and show partiality uh, to the firstborn son of his other wife that he just because he loved and cared for her more even though maybe the unloved wife uh, had his true firstborn child that had that firstborn status. Verse 17, but he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has for he is the beginning of his strength 
the right of the firstborn. So again here, the idea, we've talked about this before, the firstborn status, the firstborn son in a family received a double portion of the inheritance. That was cultural. It was what they did. Uh, and But listen, part of that was not just, well, because you're the firstborn, you're the best. You know what I mean? And it wasn't anything to do with that. You're the golden child because you were our first one. The firstborn had a very serious responsibility. Because the firstborn was to be the one to take the patriarchal lead in the family, to be the spiritual leader for the family, to be the patriarchal one of that family, as now I'm, in a sense, the oldest in the generation now that Papa's died, and so therefore I will take the lead morally, spiritually for the family and be a representative of a leader, and I will handle the affairs of, of, of the family and take care of mom or whatever. You know, and this was to be a huge role. So because of that, a double portion was given because they took care of affairs and responsibilities. It was a very important thing to take place. What God is saying here is, look, don't rob that child of that opportunity if they're the true firstborn and they want that role and responsibility just because you've had two wives and, and you like this one more than the other one. Now, what he's doing here is just protecting against partiality, of course, but you know, we read this and right away, you know, verse 15, if a man has two wives, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is this, you know, uh, polygamy in the Bible, people marrying more than one wife? Very, very important. I just had a conversation actually with my uh, oldest daughter about this not too long ago in regards to in the Bible finding people with multiple wives. And, and, and this is a very important thing to understand because you'll see this all throughout the scripture to realize that number one, be careful to remember God's original design for marriage is in Genesis chapter two. That's before Genesis chapter three, before sin ever entered the world. The only institution we have from the other side of the fall of sin is marriage. That's why I don't think we should mess with marriage and our culture is making a very grave mistake trying to change up what marriage genuinely is. The only thing we have prior to sin coming into humanity was marriage. One man, one woman. One male, one female committed for life in a monogamous relationship. That was God's design. That's God's ideal. God's design and God's ideal will never change. Now, just because the Bible records there were people who had multiple wives does not mean God approved of it. It just means that God's recording that it happened. Again, you read the Bible. God doesn't like, you know, polish up the Bible and, and make everybody look better than what they really are. What does God do? He shows us the raw truth of humanity. That's how you can tell in some ways that this is the inspired word of God because if God wanted to, he could really polish everything up, clean everything up, not tell about any of the failures of people, make all of his followers look like superstars and, you know, superheroes spiritually, but God's very honest. He shows us what humanity is like. So just because the Bible records people having multiple wives does not mean God ever endorses that. It doesn't mean God's changed the ideal and it doesn't mean that God approves of it. God's just recording that men did it, that it took place. And in that culture, in, in that day, in the ancient culture, this was commonplace. That many times people, again, it was cultural it wasn't God's design. It will never be God's design. And even though we see certain people who were believers who practiced it, David and Solomon and others, but I will say this, take notice in the Bible, every time you see somebody with more than one wife, it's always presented in a negative light because it's not God's design. And so it doesn't work. It always breeds problems. It always causes complication. What are we dealing with here? Two wives 
and a potential problem it creates because now you have children from multiple wives you love one wife more than the other wife and and because of that you say well i don't remember I don't really, you know, yeah, I have kids with her, but I mean, I don't really like that one. This one's really my woman. I want, I want her firstborn to be, my, be the firstborn. The, and, and what's God saying? Two wise problems. Problems. It would cause problems of competition and jealousy. And, and every time you see it show up in the Bible, you see that thing. What God is doing here is giving instruction to regulate something that people were doing in their practice. Again, God doesn't endure slavery, but God gives instruction regarding slavery in the New Testament. God, God's saying it happens in the culture, so here's how to regulate it. It's not my ideal, it's not my plan, but here's how to regulate it. And so here, this was given to regulate when there were two wives that there was not partiality shown with children. And I think as parents, we always need to remember that, that we should never show partiality with children. We should properly treat children with fairness and equity it causes problems whenever there's inappropriate partiality that's shown and that's a mistake that any parent can make and the other thing here i think that god's indicating to the father certainly in this situation if he had multiple wives and multiple children no matter what the marital status was god's saying here to the father that's your child and you treat them properly and you take care of that child and i don't care whether you like the mother or not anymore that's your child and you're responsible to take care of that child because you created that child and therefore need to take the proper role of a father. So God's cautioning against those problematic things. Verse 18, parents will find this unique and children should tremble in their boots. Verse 18, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother who, when they have chastened him, that is, they've tried to correct him and, and discipline him, but will not heed them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gate of the city, and they shall say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. <laughs> he will not obey our voice. He is a glutton. The idea is he's a selfish, self-indulgent person. And a drunkard, he's got substance abuse problems, he's living out of control. Then all the men of the city shall say, you deserve an episode on The Simpsons. Because this would be really funny, the rebellious kid. No, look what God says, verse 21. All the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. It's a capital crime. So you shall put away the evil from among you and all Israel shall hear and fear. So again, Look, notice that the Bible is very clear, a few things here, that God's design is for parents to maintain and have a role of authority over the lives of their children, to love them in a full sense whereby they realize the responsibility of their role as a parent is to raise that child, to train that child, to guide and teach that child into what is right and moral and even at times to correct and chasten and discipline that child when they err, as every child will, because we're all prone to it. Again, the Proverbs say this repeatedly. For example, one of my favorite Proverbs in relation to parenting says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from them. That tells me something. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. It tells me that I, in some level, compassionately and in wisdom should realize 
it is, in a sense, already in the hearts of my children because they're sinners just like me at times to behave foolishly. They're going to make mistakes. So to have unrealistic expectations of my kids, in a sense, is too severe and it's foolish on my part because God says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. They're going to do foolish things. They're going to make foolish choices. They're going to make bad decisions. They're, they're going to err. That's why they need to be trained and taught and instructed. But that's also why they need to be consistently corrected because it says the rod of correction. Notice the rod of correction will drive that foolishness out of them. In other words, our job as parents is when they err, when they make mistakes as we're raising them, is we need to love them enough to also consistently, firmly discipline and correct them to drive out of them foolish behaviors, foolish attitudes, foolish character traits that would make them become, guess what? A self-destructive, foolish adult. And an adult that is going to behave foolishly out in the world that's going to make them become a burden to the society instead of a blessing to the society the way they should be if we raise them right and then we launch them like arrows out of a quiver on target and they fly straight and they hit the mark. So God says here, listen, it is the role of parents to take proper responsibility to correct and discipline and love for the welfare of the child, but we see here it's also for the welfare of the culture. Now, the question becomes this. It's what God's dealing with here. What happens when a child is so extremely dishonoring and disrespectful of their parents' role of authority and they're just utterly rebellious and they're out of control? And take note, what we're looking at here, this isn't a four-year-old kid, okay? A glunt and a drunkard. This, you know, this isn't a four-year-old kid uh, that, you know, what's the matter with you? What are you drunk for already? This is a teenager, probably to a young adult, where the will is active, the conscience is active. This is not just a six-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. What God's addressing here is a teenage, young adult age kid. They're not independent yet. They're still living off of mom and dad's resources, under mom and dad's roof, so forth, paying the bills, taking care of them. But yet they're utterly rebellious and they're out of control. And they won't listen to their parents. It says here that verse 18, notice, it's not they cannot obey. They're six and they haven't, they will not obey. He says there, verse 18, they will not obey the voice of their father or the voice of their mother. And even when they've chastened him, in other words, the parents have tried to correct. They've tried to discipline, to correct, to keep them under control. But again, they will not heed. They're just obstinate. They're stubborn. They're rebellious. And, and verse, uh, you know, uh, Verse 20 describes they're a glutton and a drunkard, which means they're a self-indulgent person. They're just utterly selfish. All they care about is themselves, gratifying themselves, indulging themselves, and they're a drunkard, which pictures, again, somebody with a substance abuse problem, just living wild and out of control. And in that condition, what is a parent to do when a child becomes like that? Because the truth of the matter is that happens sometimes, does it not? Where all of a sudden, you know, this 13-year-old, 15-year-old, 18-year-old, 22-year-old is just selfish, stubborn, rebellious, out of control, disrespectful to the greatest degree. And the parents have done everything they can to rein them in and bring them under control. But it just seems completely out of control. And their attitude and behavior, notice, was not to be accepted. It was not to be tolerated. It wasn't something that was glamorized as funny and put on The Simpsons. Society was to look at that as that is horrible. That is absolutely deplorable. 
because they should honor that father and honor that mother in the way that God designed and, and why. Here's what the, the reason for the severity of actually God saying, if that's the case, they get out of control. The parents bring them to the city elders and they say, this child, we've tried, here's the situation, they're out of control. And then notice, not the parents, it's too close to home for them. The elders of the city were to execute that child. Wow, that seems really severe. But, but what was the reason for that? God says there to put away evil from among Israel and that others would hear and fear. Because see, here's the deal. If a child will not submit to the authority of their parents, they're already establishing a pattern. They aren't going to submit to the authority of the civil authorities, of school systems, of police departments. And you let that go unchecked and you never deal with it and you never bring an end to it I'll tell you what you're going to have is you're going to have a destructive, dangerous individual who is going to do nothing but wreak havoc on an innocent community all around it that's going to abuse people, hurt people, harm people, and, and commit incidents that they become the next news story. So God says if they are in that kind of condition and have demonstrated that kind of disrespect, God put down a pretty severe penalty in regards to how it was to be dealt with. Now, we don't have any recorded instances of this happening in the Bible. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. Maybe just the fear and the reality of it alone was enough to keep some kids in check, to make them realize. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure if it did happen, that'd be the talk of the town. Hey, you remember what happened to Simeon three years ago? We better get our act straight, man. I heard you mouthing off to your mom. Not a good idea, bro. Remember Simeon three years ago? But it shows you that God took it very seriously and dishonor, disrespect of parental authority was a very, very dishonorable thing in the sight of the Lord. I mean, what an interesting way they conducted themselves in Israel. Verse 22, and if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is, put to, he is to be put to death, you shall hang him on a tree, and his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed of God. So again, the hanging of the body here on the tree publicly, uh, that was not the form of execution if there was a capital crime committed. Uh, that was basically the display of a person who had been executed, who had experienced the death penalty because their sin or their crime that they committed was deserving of death and they had been put to death. Typically, people were put to death by stoning in that culture. So here as it describes, if someone's committed a sin deserving of death and they've been put to death and then in a sense executed, you were to then hang them on a tree, but the body didn't remain overnight hanging there because the, you know, the corpse eventually would just defile the land and cause corruption. So God said, then take it down because he says the person who is hung is accursed of God. Now, the idea is that as they hung there, it was a, a message sent to the culture. This is what happens if you do what's wrong. Uh, and this is what takes place if you bring God's curse, if you would, upon your life by dishonoring and disrespecting what's right and being evil in your conduct. And, and that person hung there, in a sense, as a disgrace, as a part of the shame of what they had done. Now, it's interesting because Paul the Apostle in Galatians 3 picks up on this concept and says in Galatians 3, 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul picks up on this idea in Galatians and says, we were the ones who were the guilty criminals 
and Jesus served our death sentence and then he was hung publicly on the tree on the cross and bore the shame and the disgrace for our guilt. And, and he takes this very verse here and amazingly uses it to, to preach the gospel of Christ as he's talking in Galatians. Well, chapter 22 says, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. So you see his animal wandering off. And again, keep in mind, their axe or their axe, their ox and so forth. That was like the, it was like their tractor of the day. These were important, valuable farming animals. So is this something of great value? His property, his animals got loose and he's wandering off. And there's an interesting verse one. God says, if you see that, don't go hide and pretend you didn't see it. Oh, there goes Joe's ox again. Watch, keep your head down, keep your head down. <laughs> Don't, don't, don't let anybody see that we saw. Just We don't want to get involved. You know, keep your head down. We've got a lot of work to do here. As this ox is wandering away, he says, No, you shall certainly bring it back. And if your brother is not near you, verse 2, or if you don't know him, you don't know wh whose animal it is, you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it, and then you shall restore it to him once he comes looking for it. You shall do the same with his donkey, so you shall do with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he has lost and you have found. You shall do likewise and must not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road. The idea is again, you know, like uh, down into the ditch uh, and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up. Again, so here what God is doing, he's giving some more laws. And this is, if you would, sort of just a law of love and a law of consideration. And God's saying, I want you to show consideration for others and get involved to help when you know you should. Whether you see his donkey wandering off or his animal wandering off, or he says, if you're out there working and or you're going along the road and you see there he is, you know, with his animal turned over in the ditch and, 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 and rather than try and avoid the situation and not get involved because, oh, I'm just too busy or I just, I don't want to get it. God says, no, I, when there's an obvious need, help, do something. Don't try and excuse yourself. And why does God have to, you look at this, why would God have to say that? Don't hide. I mean, it's, it's humorous to me. Don't hide when you see somebody who has a need and pretend like you didn't see it because God knows human nature that we are so selfish. And he knew that the Israelites are selfish and self-serving and typically people don't want to get involved. People don't want to get involved helping or assisting others if possible. Why? Because their outlook is, look, that's just too inconvenient. I'm too busy. I mean, if I get involved, I mean, I, I, then I'm going to be partly responsible. And now part of this is my problem because I stuck my hand in and I got involved and, and I could risk some loss personally. I mean, if I go help him for the next three hours, I'm going to lose three hours of work myself. And God knows our human nature, how we can be like that. And God wanted them to be willing to help when help was clearly needed and it was evident to demonstrate love practically, not to go hide and say, Lord, I really pray. Why oh, feel so bad for that guy in the ditch with his donkey there? Lord, send him some helpers. Lord, you know I can't because I need to get to Bible study. But send him a helper, Lord. Send him a good pagan that's going to do nothing else but bad things tonight. And God, God says, no. If you see the need, go address it. Get involved. Help. James 4 says, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it to him is sin. So sometimes the Bible says it's sin 
when we know the right thing to do, we think of sins of commission. We commit certain sins. God says there's also sins of omission. When we know we should do something to help, to get involved or assist, and we know we should, but we justify for whatever reasons because we're selfish and we don't get involved and we don't step in to help out. That is just the sinful. Galatians 6 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are to do that. You know, how does this happen in our lives? I'll tell you what happens earlier. You're driving down the road and all of a sudden you recognize somebody's pulled over on the side of the road with car trouble or a flat tire and as you start to get about 50 to 100 yards away, you're at a light and you stop and you can tell, oh, that's somebody from Calvary Chapel Gateway. And then you say to your wife, put your head down. (laughs) Just put your head down. Put your head down. And I'm going to hit 60 as soon as we pull away from here. (laughs) Put your head down. Put your shades on too. Why? Because that's, we don't want them to see us because then we'll we'll feel really weird in church on Sunday because we didn't stop to say, could we give you a hand or help with the flat top? God, just don't do that. Help. Get involved. Listen, I'll tell you, there are going to be times where there are situations. I'll be the first to tell you where it's not just something like that, but there are some situations that are really messy looking. And you go, I don't know if I want to get involved in that. Because if I get involved in that, but the reality is, is God says, let us not love in word and tongue, but in action and in truth to demonstrate our love. We all don't want to get involved. That's human nature. But there are times, especially as God's people, when we should love and show care and bear one of those burdens. And the idea is, is treating a person like our neighbor. Like Jesus tells us in the New Testament, love your neighbor as, as yourself. You know, Do unto others as you have them do to you. How would you want somebody else to do that situation if it were you in the ditch with your ox? You'd want them to help. You'd want them to step in. So this is what God's addressing here. Verse 5, I don't know how this connects, but you get some interesting things here. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, in case you were considering that tonight. Nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do such are an abomination to the Lord your God. So notice here is a prohibition, and this is not a prohibition. Some people take this, you know, in, in certain church circles even. They take these kind of verses and they run way off target. See that? Women should not wear jeans. You know, they should not wear pants. They should only wear dresses. And, you know, I mean, look, the crazy thing is in that day, men wore robes. It was cultural. And we need to be sensitive to the culture. What God is doing here, let's be very clear, God's making a prohibition against cross-dressing. He's giving a law that is a prohibition, clearly, against cross-dressing. And it's a law that prohibits, because of God's strong displeasure, there's our word again, an abomination to the Lord. An abomination. That means disgusting. It means something that causes great displeasure because it's detestable to God. And God says here that a person who is deliberately, this is the idea, deliberately trying to look like or appear like the opposite gender than what they are. A male trying to deliberately look like a female. A female deliberately trying to appear or behave like a male. God says that's detestable. It's, it's dishonorable. It's something that violates the gender distinctions that have been created by design, which are to be respected. God has created male. God has created female. And those things are not to be altered or discarded. They're not to be intermingled. They're not to be... There are purposeful gender distinctions. It's the way God's created us. 
And what God is simply saying here is if you were created a man, you're supposed to look like a man. And you're supposed to act like a man. And you're supposed to be masculine and be a male. And if you were created a female, then you're supposed to respect that. You're supposed to respect that that's how God created you. And if you were created a female, you're supposed to appear like a female. You should look like a female. You should behave in a way that's feminine because this was something that God determined, that God designed. And again, it's God simply saying, listen, I have sovereign determination. I love you. I have a plan for your life. I'm not a God who makes mistakes. I'm a perfect God. And so when I knit you together in your mother's womb, I chose and determined that you would be a male. I chose and determined that you would be a female with the unique gender design and distinctions and differences that males and females complement one another. And we need that complement. We need that blessed equality because we both have things that contribute to culture, to society, to, to marriage, to family that are important. And God says, it's going to work best if you just honor the way I designed it, honor the way that I did it. Boy, God help us because do we not live in a culture where we read something like that and we go, boy, that's really, really relevant for where we are right now, even in our own country. Very relevant. And the tragedy is, is not only is it beginning to take place, but it's taking place in a way whereby it's being glamorized and championed. As, oh, these are the most courageous people. Such courage. Such courage. And therefore, we're going to change our bathrooms. And whatever sex you feel like you are, you can use whatever bathroom. Doesn't matter, we'll disregard what everybody else is doing. Whatever you feel like, you just do whatever you feel like. And it's being championed as courage when God says it's actually cowardice because it's detestable. And it's a lack of courage to say, yes, I'm struggling with some things in my sexuality, but I need to have the courage Though I'm struggling with my sexuality, I need to have the courage to do what's right, to do what's righteous, to trust God. In the same way that the person who's a drunk needs to have the courage to confront their struggle with substance abuse, or the person who struggles with lying, or the person who struggles with robbing things. I tell you, when we begin to mingle with these things and, 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 and begin to give toleration and say, look, well, if you have strong desires, you have strong feelings, we are creating a moral landslide because before you know it, you're going to have people saying, listen, I was born a thief. How can you arrest me? I've had strong impulses since I was three to steal. I was born a thief. How can you take that away from me? Listen, I, was, I, w I have always had this very strong attraction for 10-year-old girls. I know I'm a 50-year-old man, but I've... And listen, you said what they did was wrong at one season, and then you said it's okay now, and you've given them all freedom, and you champion them, put them on magazines, and say they're the most courageous people for being what they really feel like they need to be. So how can you deny me my desire? I deserve equality. And see, listen, I know I should be quiet here and end this service, but I just want to say, please, we are supposed to be the salt and the light in our culture. It's not real complicated. I think a 10-year-old can figure that out. 
We live in a culture where people are losing their minds. They're just losing their minds. And I'm not saying we have to be confrontational and rude, but by golly, would to God periodically somebody on a job site, you know, in a classroom, wherever, just say, listen, I don't agree with that. Here's what I think. And to me, it's rather logical. It, it makes sense. And to be willing to stand up for what is righteous and for what is best.